online here we go and the countdown is on brian <laughs> oh we got tons so of time do your worst all right all right welcome to canon fm the podcast where we dive through canada uh, canadian bands and discuss their history their music and why they weren't bigger in the states and in some cases abroad i'm brian hey, boo. i'm ted all right good stuff um, <laughs> at last, we have arrived at what I have been waiting for for over a year. Hailing from Montreal, Quebec, the loser province, uh, Canada's biggest contribution to third wave ska, the Mighty Planet Smashers. This is part one of two. They have nine albums, and to give each album a proper listen and you know thoughtful response, we had to break it up. Yeah, we were getting a little uh, big for our britches there for a little while. We were um, trying to do these big marathon band lists, and uh, we just, you know, couldn't squeeze them all in. So we're finally getting back into the two-parters, which is the way to do it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we should start off the hop by saying this, because normally we we always say, uh, why weren't they bigger in the States, and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, the secret was, it was no secret. Ska is a very niche audience. Uh, it had its big boom in the mid to late 90s, and then it kind of just went back underground, which if you ever listen to the podcast, uh, The Ongoing History of New Music, Alan Cross did a two-part episode on the history of Ska, and he uh, declosed with a clip from Matt Collier, the front man of the Planet Smashers, and he says, I think Ska, you know, it started in the underground, and I think it belongs in the underground. Every once in a while, there's going to be a little ebb and flow, like every kind of genre. But it, it's kind of where it's meant to be. It's not something that is meant to be on the mainstay, right? Because it's it's one of yeah. the things. It's one of the things that always pisses me off when people make fun of ska. They don't take it seriously, and it like yeah, it is silly and it's happy and it's upbeat. But like at its core, they're just pop songs, right? Because for the most part, like the people who started the ska bands, like yes, they were probably fans of the specials and madness and the english beat and uh, the stuff in the 60s but on the whole like like we discussed last week with bedwin you know like real big fish love their hair metal uh the thomas kalnoki from streetlight manifesto said one of the best the, his, his, two of his favorite bands were nirvana uh the beatles the drifters and, and, the drifters, and then the yeah. zippers those are like his four favorite bands yeah yeah, yeah. so i mean like 
the reason why ska like works is because I think it's rooted in a pop sensibility, right? They're just yeah. they yeah. elected to not do you know two guitars and a bass and drums. They you know they accentuated it with horns. And it depends on which band you're talking about, because there's plenty who did do it with two guitars, bass, and drums. That's true. You like know, the Goldfinger, for instance. You know, yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of people count uh, the Police as a as an early ska band, and they're just a three piece. You know, yeah. so you know, but bringing in these instruments is is kind of a big thing. And of course, uh, I have the, now the Planet Smashers, as I remember them, it was uh, a guitar, bass, and drums, uh, sax, and trombone. Did they ever add a full-time organ player? Because they have an organ on almost every single song. Um, well, so we'll dive into that. But, I mean, I, from my memory, I don't remember a lot of organ in the early. It wasn't until Chris Murray started producing for them where he, like, he, if you actually go back and read, like, liner notes and stuff, he was often credited as the organ. Like, that was kind of oh, his contribution. Okay. He was almost like a six smasher in some of those, like, I guess you can call them the glory years. Um, and then they've since incorporated uh, a, a keyboard player in like their later albums and when they tour and stuff. Actually, okay. there's there's a funny anecdote that I heard from Matt about uh, the one of the videos in Mighty. Uh, I might as well tell you now because they, the um, the keyboard player, he was in two of their videos off the Mighty album, and he yeah. wasn't actually a, a member of the band. He was just a guy who was in like other bands who they knew. And they just needed yeah. one for the video just to look like he's playing a keyboard. And he was just like a goof that was hamming it up. It's pretty funny. You know, I don't like that when bands do that. Like Green Day's done that. I think they finally added this guy as a member. But for years, they had that extra touring guitar player. Yeah. And he was never like an official member of the band. And I'm like, why? If you're going on tour with this guy for ages, just make him a part of the band. Yeah, it's weird because it's like he's, I mean... I guess it depends on how you feel, right? If you're not, uh, if you're a bit of a wallflower and that way, you know, you, that way you don't have to do the videos. You don't have to do the press. You just show up, you play your gig and you go, you get off the stage, right? You don't have to do, no one wants anything from you. But like, as soon as you're part of those, the, the overexposure, you know, then it's a different, uh, it's a whole other kettle of fish. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out which one of us would have heard the Smashers first. I was I think thinking was about you. that. I think it was you, because I remember the first time I ever heard of the Planet Smashers, well, I was watching Much News. Remember Much News? Yeah. Much News was one of their best programs. Um, and it was a big like anti-racism action show, and the Planet Smashers played it. It was like an all-ska show, too. Like bands I had never heard of, except I just remember them from this clip. Like I remember there's a band called like the Assassins, and their lead singer was like, I think they're called the Assassins. I looked up, tried looking them up, can never find anything. But it was just like this seven foot tall black guy, all ripped with muscles, playing this like baritone sax. And I was like, maybe that was Fishbone, and maybe I'm remembering this all wrong. I mean, there's, there's that dude from the movie The Warriors. He's a, he's a ripped dude playing the he's, sax. He's, yeah, he's he's a pretty uh, he's a pretty ripped dude who played sax. But uh, the Smashers were there, and they interviewed Matt Collier, and uh, he was actually talking about how the band in the past had like gotten into fistfights with Nazis. Yeah, and stuff um, like that. Yeah, if you listen to the uh, other junk, uh, do you remember that website Scott Punk and Other Junk? Mm. This guy. Uh, of course I do. That's his podcast. It's called. Uh, oh, he's still around. It's yeah. It's called like Real Junk or something. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, he he interviewed Matt, and there's a couple stories that I took from that to add into our story because 
you know, like we've had in the past, certain Canadian bands don't have, like, there's plenty of articles and press, but, like, yeah. a, a lot of them kind of spit out the exact same information. They all take the same press clipping and just put it on the, uh, it's first on all music, and then it's on punknews.org, and then it's on this and that, and the yeah. other. it's like, it's nothing new. So, dig. I, I did my best to dig. I even reached out to the press guy at Stomp to see if I, I'm like, do you have anything more in-depth? And they never got back to me, but... Uh, they couldn't even send you like their generic bio. Well, I could have read that on the Stomp website. But speaking of <laughs> uh, speaking of Stomp, um, before we dig into the smash potatoes, oh, I like that. Um, we first have to discuss Stomp. Like we could do a whole episode on Stomp, but it was the label that launched them, and it really launched a thousand other ships. Uh, when you look at their actual roster of bands, but. In the punk and ska scene, I mean, it goes back to the '60s too, right? Like you think of Johnny Cash and um, what were those? Was it was it Sunshine? Yeah, uh, Sun Sunrise Sunrise uh, Records. Yeah, and you think of those, yeah. and you think of uh, like if you think of the Five Hundred and Sinbad talking about uh, Stax recordings, mm-hmm. and you, like there's certain bands that are associated. So you can do the same thing in punk and ska. Like you think of Epitaph. Who do you think of? Pennywise, no effects. Well, okay, you're wrong. Pennywise is on Epitaph. Are they on Fat? No, Fat Mike started Fat. Well, Bad Religion started Epitaph. Yes, Brett Gurowitz of Bad Religion. Yes, I think you were just asking some bands who like who were the first bands I thought of when I thought of Epitaph. Well, okay. So when you think of Epitaph, you think of Bad Religion and Pennywise. When you think of Fat records, you think of no effects. When you think of, if you know your history, if you think of Moon Scott records, you think of the Toasters, Hellcat, you New York Jazz Ska Ensemble. Yeah, uh, Hellcat. I mean, that's an offshoot of uh, Epitaph, but like you associate it's it with Rancid. rancid. Uh, you know, Asian Man. You think of Skank and Pickle, and while with Stomp, the first band that always comes to mind is the Planet Smashers because mm-hmm. it was founded by Matt Collier who is the front man, guitar assistant, I'd say primary lyricist, I think. Um, it was founded by him and Jordan Smith of the, the Kingpins. And no one wanted, as, as Matt Collier said in multiple interviews, he said, no one wanted to put us out. Because when they joined up, like we'll get into their history in a second, um, but, you know, we were a couple years away from Time Bomb and Scav really... Uh, bursting into the mainstream so it just there's no and you know labels in canada even back then they're like there was a couple of majors you know like warner music canada and things like that but no one was really going to take uh take a chance on you know an unproven especially like when they started this band matt basically was learning how to play guitar so really, yeah. Um, I, I read an article of him, and they said, "If you could go back in time, what would you do differently?" He's like, "I would have picked up the guitar at like 13." So by the time oh, I got to college and started a band, I would have been a little more seasoned. Um, but yeah, they were looking for an outlet for their own. Um, originally, they were going to do like a Planet Smashers and King's uh, Kingpins split. They instead. Um, like once they put out their own stuff, they actually took a cue from uh, his Robert Bucket, air quotes, Hing, uh, Hingley, who is the founding member of the Toasters. Uh, he created uh, what's called Ska Mageddon, which was basically uh, 
compilation, just similar to what like the Fat Records and the Punkaramas did. Um, but he was one of the originators with this because he wanted to kind of curate what was on the Moonska uh, roster at the time, and okay. just ska in that particular area. And so, like the Pie Tasters, Mustard Plug, MU was MU three three thirty three zero out of St. Louis, uh, Spring Heel Jack were on there, and so. No one really was doing it for Canada, but there was some Canadian ska bands up there. So by 1996, they he did it called the All Canadian Club, and uh, you can find it online. Uh, aside from the Kingpins and the Smashers and uh, was it King Apparatus? That was Chris Murray's band. Yeah. Uh, Lest we forget about also one, and I've told this story before. <laughs> I told you about how I was at Mind Games listening to Hepcat. And this lady came up to me. She goes, who is this? I'm like, oh, it's Habcat. And she goes, uh, are they Canadian? I went, no, they're from uh, they're from L.A. And she's like, okay, they sound like one. Do you know who one is? I'm like, no, I don't know who one is. And she's like, one is this ska band from Toronto. And they opened for King Apparatus. And I had no idea who she was talking about at the time. But I didn't want to look like a newbie. So I was like, oh, yeah? Because <laughs> she was acting like it's a big deal, right? Yeah. And um, and uh, what's it called? Uh, and uh, she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, they sound just like this band that you're listening to, Abcat. She, she was like, check out King Apparatus. I'm like, I'll do that. No, not, not King Apparatus. Check out one. And it's impossible to find. I went home <laughs> on LimeWire, and I looked everywhere for at least on YouTube. Looked everywhere for videos and recordings of one. I couldn't find anything. I told her to check out Hapcat, so we'll see if that. I don't know if that ever happened. I never saw this woman again for my for the rest of my life. But, but anyway, it's one of the cool things about us getting to play our own tunes um, at Mind Games when we worked there was that we could kind of unite with certain customers over music. Yeah, yeah. I had a really awkward thing with this guy once. I was playing a Dave Matthews Band song, and he comes over to me with this huge grin. And he goes, "Are you a Dave Matthews Band fan?" And I'm like. I like their music. I got a couple of their albums. I do not go on tour and follow them from city to city and see them live. And he goes, oh, okay. <laughs> like that was it. <laughs> and I'm like, I know he's going to want to talk to me about how many times I've seen them live. Cause I know that that's the vibe of a Dave Matthews fan. I'm like, I, I just like the music. They're good musicians. I read some good songs. I, I, I have not gotten to that far of a commitment yet with them. The way you're making them, like, make it. Remember when in our first year or my first year house, when Crowley walked up the stairs that one time, and I just like, and he had this big look on his face, this big grin. Yeah. I just slowly closed the door. That was basically you closing the door on this guy. You just shut him right down. Basically, I felt bad. I'm not, I didn't feel bad. I was just being honest. Yeah, with you him, can't you help know? that you don't you don't follow him around like the Grateful Dead. Yeah, like. If you meet a guy who's into fish, the first thing he's going to ask you is about how many times you've seen them live. Yeah. He's not going to ask you, you know, about which CDs you've bought. Yeah. It doesn't matter to a fish head. You know, what matters is how many times you've seen them. Dave Matthews falls into that group. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But, yeah, anyway. moving ahead, we can we can do a whole episode just on Stomp. But before we bridge to, because we're... We start. We ended with the uh, the Bedouin last week. We might as well start with that. Here's a here's an interesting Bedouin story. When they signed the Stomp, um, Stomp Records at one point was a hundred grand in debt, and yeah, as and Matt was literally this close from uh, holding folding up shop and just you know forwarding on with the band and say fuck Stomp, we'll you know put our albums elsewhere. Well, we have no trouble. Like people have offered to give us a label or uh, get, sign us. We'll be fine. And someone said, you know, 
it's no big deal carrying that much debt. Labels carry a lot of debt because, you know, it's a lot of upfront expenditures, right? You assigning bonus, especially back in the 90s and 2000, you know, signing bonus uh, or recording budget, um, you know, all label expenses, all this crap. But then you get it back when, if the album hits, right? So, um, and so when 2000 and what did I say last week? 2004 or five was uh, sounding a mosaic. That album did so well, it literally made enough to wipe out that debt. Wow. Yeah. Just Is that point. right? I wish All I, of the strength of When the Night Feels My Song. I wish. And that's not a surprise, too, because that thing was humongous. I wish I had that fact last week, but whatever. Um, anyway, back to the Smashers. Uh, so it's a weird kind of almost like two false starts. Because like normally with bands, they like they'll have their like high school period where there's a bit of turnover or something, and or uh, a couple of people that leave early, and then like it's a pretty consistent lineup. But the Smashers are a little bit different. They have two first iterations. The first, like they all went to McGill uh, for the most part, and uh, a lot of them were music majors, and they practiced out of the McGill music department. And uh, the first incarnation was in 93. Matt was the original sax player, actually. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. And he was, okay. he wanted a band that had a, like a Manchester sound, but with horns, uh, because... Okay, now, now, describe the Manchester sound, because you're into Britpop and stuff like that. What uh, does that mean? I mean, like, the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, that kind of, like rock it just it was very experimental it's like they were trying to get the 60s back a little bit does oasis fall into that camp early oasis could but they don't experiment their oasis is a pretty much straight up rock band but there's a couple little songs here and there where they kind of dabble with that um but so matt tells a story that he was really into bands like elo as a kid and, oh sure and his brother is must have been a couple of years older than him, and he went to uh, England. I don't know for if it was for school. Or I just had to. I had to remember ELO's Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah. You said ELO for some reason. You were talking about Manchester. I thought of EMF. Oh. You know, you're unbelievable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he. I don't know if he went for college or just vacation or whatever. But he went, and he was as Matt says, he went to England, a preppy. And came back a bit of like a mod rude boy, and he was just, oh, all right. Uh, he was into everything ska, uh, you know, specials, Clash, Sex Pistols, everything Britain uh, of that era. And he took a firecracker to the ELO record that uh, had "Don't Bring Me Down" on it, and he blew it up. <laughs> and he's like, "This is what you're gonna, this is what you're going to listen to." And Matt got hooked, and so he wanted to bring a bit of the like Manch, even though I don't know what. None of those ska bands, none of them are from Manchester. I mean, the Happy Mondays are, but, like, the specials are from Coventry. Uh, I think Madness is from London. I don't think uh, anyone, anyone is from actually from Manchester that's ska. But. I'm going to sound like such a single-minded xenophobe. I just feel they're all from England. <laughs> I mean, you know, everyone's talking about small, how, how small England is. We couldn't fit into this room, not by a long time. <laughs> It well, see, that's we don't have enough time to tangent off how uh, all the different <laughs> song or sounds that came out of England. Whether you're like, look at yeah. the Beatles are from Liverpool, 
and the stones. Well, that's right. Uh, the stones are from um, oh, where the hell are they from? I forget, but uh, those are two different sounds. Now I don't know if that was just what they were influenced by, or if it was something of their their geography. But uh, I mean, look at look at soccer. Just like several blocks or several towns over is two different soccer teams that hate each other. You know what I mean? It's like it's from it's it's from here to like Dundas, from like from Hamilton to Dundas, and you got two different football teams that all want to like stab each other in the in a street fight. And that's weird because in Canada, with 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 some very very few exceptions, there is no like Vancouver sound or yeah. the Toronto sound. I've said this before with like jazz. You know, jazz kind of there's kind of a Montreal vibe to jazz. But like that's about it, and of course you get maritime music, but that's like traditional. The um, the only thing I could think of is the early to mid two thousands kind of indie rock sound that like a lot of those bands that came out of Toronto. But uh, mm-hmm. that's about it. That's the only thing I could really pinpoint up here. Um, but anyway, they so they jammed. They played like a gig or two, but it really fell apart because. Uh, I guess apparently they had a couple of female players in the band. I don't, I don't have a full roster, um, oh. but uh, apparently Matt slept with two of them. <laughs> and uh, the drummer basically disappeared, as they say. And then um, the they were doing it while they were in McGill. And so the school year ended, and I guess they all went back to where they came from. And they're like, so are we going to pick this up and uh, you know keep soldiering on? They're all like, eh. but. Matt and another guy uh, named Seiko Munaretto uh, were part of the first incarnation, soldiered on, and Matt met uh, Dave Cooper, who was, who would become a longtime member, who's still technically a member, but I think he, I think for various reasons he can't tour. I think he can't get into the states, but that's a whole other issue. Um, oh, okay. But I think yeah, because you remember when we saw them at the hometown throwdown in Boston, they talked about how they entered the country illegally. Yeah, and like they they borrowed Big D and the kids' tables equipment and stuff like yeah. that. Play the hometown throwdown. <laughs> um, but they met Dave at a. Uh, I don't know if you remember this chain, but it was called Muffins. Yeah, I remember Muffins. <laughs> I don't think uh, you got really mad at me once at Muffins. I mean, I get mad at you. I, I get mad at you all the time, but refresh my memory. Uh, we were at the mall with your brother, and you got mad at your brother, so you took off. And so your brother finds me, and he's like, "We got to find Brian. We got to get out of here." I'm like, "All right." I'm looking high and low for you all over the Lime Ridge, and there you are sitting at muffins, drinking your milk and eating a muffin. And uh, I kind of walked up to you, and I kind of slapped you in the back of the head, and I'm like, "Come on, we got to go." And I don't think you saw it coming. So you got really mad and you were like, what the fuck is your problem? How dare you come up and smack me in the head when I'm trying to have a snack. Oh, I'm going to kick your ass. When we get, like you were mad. You were very, very mad at me. And uh, I didn't think too much of it because I knew you were also still mad at Steve. So I thought that maybe you were just mad. At, but no, you were legitimately mad at me because I smacked you in the head and you didn't see it coming. Um, yeah, it's not the first time I've gotten mad at you for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, are you chasing me with a bat before? <laughs> uh, so they met Dave, and he just happened. It was a chance encounter, and he happened to be holding one random solitary drumstick. I don't know if he. They don't know if he that- found it. <laughs> 
it's almost like one of those things like like a you know like on like a, a high school TV show how there's that guy and he's a drummer and that's his 100% his personality yeah. and he's always got sticks in his back pocket like Jason Siegel's character on uh, Freaks and yeah. Geeks you know he's always got sticks with him he's always tapping on this tapping on that with the sticks but what's funny it's almost like that what's funny is it was not only it wasn't a pair of sticks it was just one solitary stick and so Matt's like hey man do you drum and he's like, sure. So the next day, he actually went out and <laughs> he went out and bought like an electric drum kit because uh, he did not drum. And he was the drummer on the self-titled album. And then he switched to bass shortly after that. But the That's it's, basic, it's I mean, I almost bluffed my way into a pretty big time editing gig that I would have been way over my head in. But thank God, I was—I would have been embarrassed if I actually showed up because they, uh, when I graduated film school, I got—I think it was a tip from a, a film prof or something who almost hooked it up. But um, I edited, or I—I I was going to take a practical test on Avid, and if you've ever edited, edited on Avid, it sucks ass. Some people love it; I hate it because um, it's basically the closest thing to editing on tape, but it's digital. Because okay. it's very, like, you have to just, like, put this here and that. Like, whereas, like, with Final Cut, you can just, like, click, click, click and just have, like, a, the timeline all over the place. Avid has to be very, like, it's fucking annoying. And I, I took one. Did we use that in, in, in film school? We did, but, like, we only edited one project on it, and I didn't even do it. It was, like, a group project, and I never okay. even got my hands on it. If I did, it was, like. Yeah, because I, I remember being very frustrated with the program I had to Yeah, use. and so. Uh, so my interview went well, and they're like, all right, we're going to have you back and uh, do a practical test just because, you know, this is a, we're under the gun, so we got to make sure, like, we don't have to be over your shoulder and stuff. And I said, no problem. And I went out and bought an Avid book and was reading it and just kind of like, I got to get, like, I was contemplating driving to Niagara to see if my the film profs would let me, like, practice on it just for shits and giggles. And then, like, it's not bad idea. a day later, they called me and they're like, hey, it was great meeting you. I'm sorry. We just don't have time. Uh, we have someone with a lot more experience on the resume. We know we don't have to worry about them. You know, if we have something that's not avid, like we'll definitely give you a call. Uh, and I'm like, no problem. <laughs> so I was like, blessing, probably blessing in disguise. Yeah, I would have wasted all of our fucking time. Um, but yeah, Dave, Dave bluffed his way into this gig, which I mean, I guess depending on what side of the fence, what he would have been doing if he wasn't doing this. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise. Maybe the Planet Smashers really fucked him over. Who knows? But uh, um, <clears throat> Matt also recruited Travis Wilkinson on trombone, and he was attracted by a very misleading poster that says, It's your big big break, goofball. Or sorry, goofball trombone player needed for a ska band that's huge in Belgium with confirmed European tour. Uh, they did not have that. Apparently... <laughs> By the way, this sounds like a wacky sitcom. Yeah, apparently this is a reference to the movie Singles. Apparently that's what they did with uh, Citizen Dick. That's the band in that. Okay. It's basically Pearl Jam, but it's uh, like mixed people. I've never seen singles. I've seen parts, but uh, don't you have it? I do. I think I got it. You, you remember when I was just buying DVDs for for funsies because yeah. they were so cheap? But uh, uh, so Matt was an engineering student, and a lot of the the horn players were all uh, in band, so they, they they had some good players at their disposal. 
Um, well, that's one thing we'll get into. Like one of the big things about the Smashers, I would probably say, I know Dickie Barrett likes to say that the Boston's have the best horn section in music. I know that Streetlight's got that big, awesome four-piece horn section. It's tough to beat the Smashers horn well, section. Well, they do it. And it's only two. Yeah, guys. they they do a lot with very little. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I think I brought this question up to you once uh, when you were down last time. I said, you know, if you and me were a package deal and we were recorded or recruited into a ska band, like, what horn section would you want to jump in on? And I, I think I even said back then, I said Planet Smashers or Less Than Jake circa the Borders and Boundaries era because they had two horn, uh, two saxophones, two trombones. Yeah. Those were my two picks. Yeah. But. And then if we were you and me being sax and trombone, it would have had some balance. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it's what's it called? I, I wouldn't want to mess with the Smashers oh, Mojo. Yeah. Because both of those guys can play. Yeah. Like they, they are the standout players in that yeah. band. Yeah. Um, so at this point, they had C- – uh, what, what did I say his name was? Seiko, uh, Matt, Dave, now Travis. And they had another uh, person on tenor saxophone, Andrew. This sounds like a ska name. Skaranowski. Um Okay. And so it's crazy. Matt already had a degree under his belt. He was pursuing his master's while the Planet Smashers were still going on. And he was two years into his PhD before he decided to give music a full-time go. That's nuts. Um, It could have been a doctor. That's just like that joke I saw. Do you remember I I told you I saw that one comedian once my dad was watching like Just for Laughs or something. I've seen him before. He's this Canadian guy, but he's real kind of like rough looking he's got a hat that he wears low and he's just eh. and his, his whole bit's about uh, eh, if you ever go to a bar don't get into a fight with a dad because I'll destroy you because they hate their kids so much <laughs> <laughs> he's pretending to punch someone in his face he's like that's for my son quitting law school to join a ska band <laughs> my dad thought that was hilarious <laughs> um, let's see so yeah it pretty much wasn't until uh, life of the party, and they're like, "Okay, we're making some money. I could do this full time." That he uh, he dropped out of engineering or his PhD in engineering. Like that's nuts. Wow. Uh, when you, especially when you factor how much they toured in those old days. Like so, he must have been doing like his his some of his studies by correspondence or when they had some time off. But either way, that's neither here nor there. If I ever meet Matt, I'm going to talk to him about that. But uh, it could have been one of those things too, where it's just. You know, get into the van and go. This is the musician yeah. life. Uh-huh. Um, let's see. So in 1994, they released a demo called Meet the Planet Smashers. Um, just a couple songs. They were kind of leftovers from like those early, that first incarnation. Uh, and Matt says he vividly remembers the first gig they played outside of Montreal. Uh, that he, he had borrowed a buddy's VW van, a leaky one, and as it turns out, uh, it took five hours to get to Kingston because this thing, this van, was such a piece of shit that uh, it took. It was just, and so their first quote unquote tour was two stops, Kingston and Boston, and that was it. <laughs> That's a, still a pretty good tour, like. You know, Kingston's good college That's town, true. and the Boston's yeah. huge. So. Um, yeah. And then, so after that, they released their self-titled album, 
on June 15th, 1995. Uh, again, they reworked uh, Vampire, and uh, I think there's one or two other ones that they reworked for this one. Um, Matt said, I don't know if this is true, but he said it cost 250 bucks because they recorded it in Dave's apartment with five mics, and it sounded like it. That was his quote. Um, <laughs> it's uh, as it's crazy when you actually think about the timing of this because they they released this in June of '95, and Time Bomb came out a couple months later. And not only that, Clueless, which had the Boston's, who were already building up uh, momentum, Clueless came out in July 19th of 1995. And as they say, a rising tide lifts all boats. Uh, ah. So the ska boom was starting to take off. And Matt has said this on multiple occasions that this the Planet Smashers, because um, if you watch that ska in the 90s documentary, which actually Matt was supposed to be a part of, they asked him. He just he got lazy and forgot to respond to an email and or couldn't commit to a time. Oh, and so he's just like, it was my fault. I should have been in this thing. It was a great documentary. So... The the filmmakers tried. They do get they do get Chris uh, Chris yeah. Murray in there, so there's some Canadian. Yeah, because I mean they could have had a whole other section just on Canadian ska with them as a bit of a catalyst, but because uh, they they talk about Camurri and uh, like overseas stuff, and they talk about Latin America where there's a big ska thing, but uh, we missed our chance to be represented thanks to Matt's lazy. But don't they they mention they get mentions in it? Don't they? I think so? I can't remember. But yeah, uh, yeah but they they said they were insulated from a lot of the overexposure because in the documentary they talk about how it was so ridiculous how ska just took off and like in if you watch our uh, first video on or on Canada FM's Instagram page the one with all the ska references you know you've hit a weird apex when you're in an Andrew Dice Clay sitcom like Real Big Fish was. Yeah, like, and then a movie from the creators of South yeah. Park. Yeah, and then yeah, it was strange. <laughs> I remember seeing them two perform on Donnie and Marie's daytime talk show, <laughs> and they let them do like two songs too. Like it was a big deal. Like they were very impressed by how they brought the house down. Yeah, fish. Well, it was when they did uh, "Why Did They Rock So Hard." They're a tight live band, so. Yeah. But uh, Ted, what are your thoughts on the self-title? Let's dive right in. All right. Well, I, you know what? I liked how raw it sounded because uh, it's it's easy to hear. Just uh, what's it called? You know, where it's it's nice to hear where they yeah. started. Do you know what I mean? Um, God, you want me to go track by track? Well, I mean, the the standout singles that they still play to this day are "Mission Aborted." Sugar coated candy covered eyes it certainly helps to hide your disguise, but I'm gonna find you. Um, pee in the elevator. <laughs> and uh, I think they still play uh, My Love, the Vampire, I'm pretty sure. And I think I've heard them play... <laughs> So my love vampire, um, I said might make my Halloween playlist next year. Well, then what's, um, what's, for, uh, uh, it's unfortunate because the one that we got on the Spotify is not the one that's on the uh, the actual album. They did a they oh, did okay. a, a remastering or something in 2014. So this one 
is a little bit different. It's a newer yeah. version. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, like I loved a lot of this stuff. Like it's, it's, it's so weird just how, I'm not going to say they're sweet and innocent cause they're not, but like th- there's, there's something about them. Like, um, well, let's, let's start with the second track. So happy. You ever notice that sometimes, especially in the early days before he refined his singing voice, um, Matt would sing in almost this like game show like yeah. voice. Like, hey, how we doing? Ah, nah, nah. And then in So Happy, he's singing about a relationship like ending. Yeah. And how I'm better off without you. Like, that's a lot of their things. It's like taking an optimistic point of view on some like tough situations. And then they also do have like a very at a young age. Okay. When we had our bands back in high school, we tried to write songs. You were definitely influenced by their songwriting. Because uh, for Pierce Me, I have Old Man Yells at ca- Cloud. <laughs> what I love about the Planet Smashers, you never have to guess the meaning of their songs. It's very obvious. I can't stand the kids today where they get their piercings, sir. Yeah, you well, know? that's the, the Planet uh, Smashers, like we said at the start, the sky is very goofy, but the Planet Smashers have their own humor that they add into all the a lot of the lyrics that they take yeah. it very seriously but they but they have fun with it at the same time some other notes i had on here was uh let's see um the song janice i wrote you could totally do that ned's new dance to the song <laughs> you remember that the arms uh i like how there's some pick it ups in there two souvlaki pita one fry next time i go to pita pit i'm just going to play this for the cashier um, in the coolest guy in the world, I wrote that could be my theme song because let's face it, Brian, coolest guy in the world. Uh, and I liked how they had a sky dome <laughs> yeah. reference in that one. Um, meal of meat, here, another one. He's fed up with the vegans of the world. Uh, I kind of reminds me of Cheeseburger in Paradise by Jimmy Buffett, but I expected that one to be a little bit more tongue in cheek. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, big game show host thing again appears in the song Frozen. Uh, which is weird because I think it's about homelessness. Uh, the Manta Ray dance, I wrote, um, Alex will like this. Another reason to hate the Rays, they never adopted this as their theme song. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, no, you know, it was a good album. I really, I, I, it's a good start to the, the to the, uh, to the disco. Yeah, the, um, I forget what the, it was like Man versus Ape or something was the original publication, but it was re-added on Wikipedia and uh, like Punk News. But they, the reviewer said they're basically just simpleton frat boy lyrics, and it's just too, it's too simple, and it's they're just shitting all over it. Even though it's like, does this guy not know anything about the genre? Yeah. Like hard hitting, like the Boston said some pretty hard hitting yeah. lyrics. But aside from that, like real big fishes songs were all about, you know, I, my band sucks, <laughs> and I'm gonna go and kill myself. That was most of their lyrics. And then you know, um, you know, John Feldman was a good songwriter for Goldfinger. He had some good tunes. Unless the, you know, Chris Demakes was a good uh, well, songwriter. But well, actually, guess Vinny wrote all the. Well, lyrics, see, right? this, that was weird. Is uh, apparently they're they're all credited as songwriters on a lot of those. Uh, Less than Jake albums, but it's mainly Vinny. But uh, I mean, he's been gone for a couple albums, so it's uh, the rest of the band kind of picking up the slack. But uh, but it just goes to show you, in, in that genre, there's nothing too hard hitting. Um, it's probably why, like, you had that kind of family approach where not so much, you know, the Smashers, because they were up in Montreal, but less than Jake and Real Big Fish and 
say Ferris and Goldfinger, they all kind of ran in the same right. circle. And then you get a band like Sublime would be outliers because, well, hey, Brad had already died by that point. But also, like, their lyrics are so dark <laughs> and about, and actually had a lot of, like, you had to think about their lyrics a little bit. You know what I mean? So maybe that's why they were outliers to the genre. But it's always just been a fun genre with nothing too, it's, it's too true. heavy, you know? And I think maybe that when we were kids, we looked at these guys, all right, write about things that people do that piss you off, you know? Write about uh, some hot chick that you know you can never yeah. have a date with. You know, write about that stuff. Cause write what you know is what they say. Well, and what's he going to do? Write, write about engineering. Well, they do have that song off Life of the Party called Trouble Engin- in Engineering. But uh, that's... Can I still, still, um, yeah, not every band is Streetlight Manifesto, who's basically just like, well, I've read... Great I've read, example. I've read the Great books example. of Tolstoy and uh, James Joyce and everything else, and I'm just going to bum everybody out for yeah. 13 songs. I mean, don't get me wrong. The songs are phenomenal. But uh, it's just, they're a no fun van. I mean, they, they have fun on stage and they break out. But this is this one line. That, yeah. I didn't even like, some of the lyrics will go way over my head. Like my brother got into a phase where he'd re, he, he read Catcher in the Rye. So he was really up on Catcher yeah. in the Rye. And they started listening to uh, Streetlight. And they had that one song where he's like, Holden Caulfield's a friend yeah. of mine. We go drink it from time to time. My brother's like, oh, it's an awesome lyric. Catcher in the Rye. I'm like, yeah, I don't read. <laughs> you read magazine. <laughs> Magazines. I remember. <laughs> we had to read The Tale of Two Cities. And, uh, <laughs> I think I got two sentences. I got the best of times. It was the worst of times. And then I tuned out. <laughs> Even the Coles notes from The Tale of Two Cities bored me. I don't know how I passed that When class, I was in grade God. 11 English, I had to read Tessa the Dubervilles because I still was convinced I was going to go to university. So I was taking university English. Yeah. And that was the worst fucking mistake I ever did. I When I took it in oh. summer school, I don't even remember what book I had to read, but it was way simpler. I was like, I don't think I got through a chapter. I'm like, this book sucks. I don't know why it's deemed a classic. Yeah. Um, I went to like up my grade in English during the yeah. victory lap. The only book I remember reading was that one about the the guy who's like a lawyer and he's investigating a murder. He's got a coke problem. Do you remember that Boo. book? Okay, maybe you didn't pick it, but I had to read that, and uh, it was it was strange. It was okay. Like I actually read most of it and was able to digest it because it took place in modern times. It was kind of a crime novel, but uh, and I remember too. We had to do like where we matched up like our book report. Yeah, and I remember song. that. And I did my yeah. Brian Wilson. Uh, and, uh, what's it called? And, uh, I, I stuttered a lot. Like I wasn't prepared to do the presentation, but the content was really good. And the teacher really liked my comparison to the song. And that was it. I remember cause you picked uh, yeah. Barney's version and you did the jerk by, uh, sorry, the, the, grouch. the jerk by green day, the grouch by green day. And, uh, I got a really good mark. And then you were like, how the fuck did you get another really good mark? You're like, I don't know what it's stitches laughing at all the cursing of that song. And I was like, yeah, but Brian, I made my points about my comparisons. You're like, you're a stumbling like an idiot. And I'm like, well, I, mean, I didn't gonna say. But anyway, I, that was like one of the few good marks I got. I got in, oh, that was, I think that was, no, that was English. Creative writing was something else. Creative writing I did well in English did terrible. I got a good mark, but you just got a better Yeah, but for English, the uh, guidance counselor sat me down and said, uh, so what do you want to get into? And I'm like, I want to get into radio. And they're like, so you plan on going to college? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, this English degree is going to be worse than your college, Mark. 
It's going to replace your college mark. And it's going to be harder for you getting to school. And I'm like, oh, shit. And she's like, why'd you take it? And I'm like, I don't know. Didn't want to say, oh, Brian took it. <laughs> but then she was like, oh, I'm taking you out of this course right now. And it was just before exams. So I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I don't even remember. There's like a few days before exams. I think I might have even stayed in class just because I had nothing to do. I just sat there. <laughs> Didn't tell the teacher I was leaving. Just did nothing. I'll go with you. And <laughs> mentioned law class at the end of the day. The, um, the one song that you forgot to mention that was a phenomenal track and it was like what we were talking about how tight this horn section is is uh, Ska of Iran I don't know why it's called that Ska of Iran is a good one yeah yeah that's just uh, another killer example they, they like to include about one or two instrumentals per album uh, just finished listening to Mighty before I came out that only had one but I don't like Life of the Party's got two and so one or two per album is good uh, I don't like some of the scums I've been listening to recently, like some of these bands from like South America and stuff like that, they're almost like jazz bands. And they will do full out albums where maybe they got three tracks with vocals on a 10 track album. Like some bands really just get deep into the instrumentals. And that's cool if that's what you want to do, but instrumentals just don't tend to hold my interest. See, it depends. Cause... Like they used to when I was playing sax. When I was playing sax, I loved instrumentals. I would love to hear a, an original album of Streetlight material, all instrumental, just because those guys are so bloody talented. It's just next level. Because yeah. uh, I heard an interview once with Thomas where he's like, I'm a self-taught guitar player. Those guys all went to like music school. They're like prestigious ones too. Like They're from New Jersey, so they probably could have all gone to like uh, either Ber the Berklee School of Music in Boston or potentially Juilliard, which is in New York. So, I mean, I don't, yeah. I, there's probably one more in between somewhere, but uh, probably all very good players. Um, somewhere oh, in between. Oh, scalpels. Yeah. But we're not yeah, obnoxious. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk smack about that uh, checkered pass podcast in case they might help us with promotion. If they, if they like it, if they cross paths with us, but uh they were really laying on the ska puns a little thick. It's their thing. but uh, Now, by puns, were they referencing songs, or are they just adding ska to every single well, thing they said? Like that bit uh, from that show, uh, Those Who Can't. Do you remember that, where the guy's like, his name's Scott, and he can't change it to Scott. <laughs> and then at the end, he tells the guy to skedaddle. And he's like, don't you mean Scott-addle? And he's like, yeah, you missed one. You missed one. It's a bit of both. Like, uh, the guy, it's his brother-sister okay. duo, and uh, the guy would, like, he'd start a little intro with a couple of ska puns, and he'd be like, uh, like, so I was listening to, part. they did a two-parter on the Smashers themselves, and uh, they're like, we're going to descent into the valley of the planet Smashers, and, uh, and we're not going to be unstoppable. It was all the later albums that they were referencing. I was like. Like, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not so bad. Anyway, in 1996, uh, the band's summer tour extended into the summer, uh, the, the United States. Uh, the band suffered mishaps like broken saxophone, multiple van breakdowns, and an issue at the border that prevented Travis from completing the tour. After a few more shows in Montreal, the original lineup broke it up with uh, Seiko, Andrew, and Travis. So uh, the drums and the horn section all taking off. They left the band. And so Matt, Matt also told a story. I think it was in Timmins. Uh, they got super drunk at one gig and contracted sc scurvy or scabies. I think it was scabies. 
because oh the God. bar was so dingy and stuff. And uh, so needless to say, touring life was not for them. And as uh, Matt said in uh, the one podcast, they all got real jobs with pensions. Um, so so I, I, my parents took me to get some new clothes just before, I think it was like our sixth grade graduation grade in, um, yeah, in grade six, duh. Uh, but they took, took me to Lime Ridge to this department store I'd never been to before. I never went back since. I tried on a pair of shorts. We did not buy the shorts. And I got scabies <laughs> because of it. And we they took me to Nelson. He's like, yeah, this is a bug that hides in the shorts. He's like, this bug can travel through a screen. They're so small. You know what I mean? Like, you can't see them. He goes, my guess, because it was right around my waist yeah. where I wore the shorts. He's like. I guess you tried on the shorts, and there was a bunch of them in there, and they all bit you at the same time. And I'm like, oh, God. So, yeah, I had horrible bite marks <laughs> in a grade six grad. So that's why I wore my dad's shorts, because they were, like, nice and loose-fitting. And, uh, and uh, yeah, didn't irritate my skin. <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> I got nothing to respond to that. Right. Um, Dave switched to base, and he, that's where he stayed for the remainder of the Planet Smashers career. Uh, they brought in Tim Doyle, Kurt Ruszczynski, uh, and Leon Kingstone on sax. And Tim and Kurt were a mainstay for a few more of those albums. I think Leon might have been on. A, I think this might have been his only album. I think he might have uh, bounced after this one, but I can't remember. But the the core lineup stayed pretty intact until they kind of made a bit of a change in like the 2010s. And then that lineup's pretty much been the consistent since, but um, the attack of the planet smashers uh, was recorded between April f- uh, 1st and 11th of 1997. They cranked this out in like a week and a half. Uh, and then it was released in February of 1998. Um, and I, you know, I was thinking about it because sometimes, sometimes people, uh-huh you know think about bands and you know, there's like oh some of these albums have too much chuffa or like you need a producer to say uh i'm pretty sure you and me are the only ones that say albums have too much chuffa <laughs> <laughs> they use that exact or they terminology might say um you know there's they could use an editor it's like oh this album has too many songs and the planet smashers are no exception some of their later stuff has a lot of albums mm. but i think part of the reason aside from matt needing a place to put his music you know, they, they, they're their own label. They answer to no one. They're like, we are going to do what we want. You know, so this, we don't have to fight for getting a song on and off the album. Because that's a big thing, right? You get certain bands that if the label had their way, a song that would have actually been a hit so almost didn't make it off an, uh, make it to an album, right? But like these guys have just carte blanche to do whatever they want. So it's one of those things that whatever, for better or for worse, their, um, their choices are theirs alone. Because, you know, sometimes, like we talked about in the past, you say, why did this band not make it bigger? Well, it's like, well, they, the album inter- or the, the, the record label interfered or the record label didn't do enough promotion or the, you know what I mean? The, the producer that the record label picked was bad or whatever. This is all them. This is all every choice they made is like yeah. their own doing. So, oh, excuse me. I keep burping. Well, sorry. That's a Sure that sounds great well, on the podcast. I can edit it out if you don't keep talking about it. Um, but their their biggest singles off this album are, uh, were "My Decision." It's my decision. Not based on any point of view. I 
which the video, if to bring it back to the nineties, if you're, if you grew up in the nineties in the GTA going to Toronto, you remember squeegee kids and the whole bit oh, yeah. of my decision is Matt gets hit with a squeegee and he just starts like running around with it. And he'd like throw it to somebody else and then it would hit that person. And then it was just like the squeegee was like, it's like a horror film where it just kept tracking people down. Um, but uh, I don't know why I brought that. Oh, it's because the I was listening to In Defense of Ska last week and they were talking to the dude from the Flatliners. And since he's from, I think, Richmond Hill, he was he went on a whole tangent about mm. squeegee kids because the in defense of ska guys didn't know or no they were asking him about it they're like what's this whole thing with the squeegee kids and he's like oh well back in the day people would just hang at street corners and squeegee your car whether you wanted to or not and then demand money most of them were good enough to ask they'd walk up and make eye t- contact and do the motion and you just go no well, and they keep walking it's better than like in new york city where all they have is like <laughs> a newspaper um but yeah. the others I used to think of George Costanza when he threw that coffee on that guy's car. <laughs> He's cleaning it off with the newspaper. <laughs> you call this coffee? Uh, yeah. The other single was Change, which uh, both of those had videos. Uh, I turn around and tell them, go back to the shopping mall. I won't change. But with that uh, college radio help, this uh, reached number two on the National College Radio uh, Charts for two months Not straight. too shabby. Um, no other chart success to speak of, but I mean, certain bands were built up, you know, because of college radio. And, you know, the, the target already audience is college kids for ska. So it makes it's perfect. Uh, what are your <laughs> thoughts on... In uh, Attack of the Planet Smashers? I think of their first five albums... Attack of the Planet Smashers is the best one. Really? I really do. This thing, you know, we always talk about Chuffa. There's no Chuffa on this. And uh, that's the thing with the Smashers. You know, you talked about how you had that issue with um, Jay Malinowski uh, with one type of song he tried to do with his voice. Collier's the same thing. He's not very good at doing ballads yeah. or love songs. That is his Achilles heel because he's not a well-trained singer. He can do what he can do and you got to live with it. You know what I mean? Here he plays in his comfort zone really, really well. Um, There's also like this giant surf uh, inspiration that they would carry throughout the rest of their careers, but you don't get that too much of the first album. And this is the first part that you really, really do start to get it. And um, I like how they kicked it off with an instrumental. I thought that was really, really good. Uh, I know the 80s bus was a big Brian favorite growing up. <laughs> nice and bouncy. You know yeah. what I mean? And I like how his voice is a little bit angry on this one. It's not like this on any of the other albums. You know, he's singing with a little bit of angst there. Um, you know, uh, on, on the Chris Manx podcast, I just started listening to uh, his his big anniversary episode where he brought John Feldman back. And the first time we had John Feldman on, they talked about here in your bedroom, and now they're talking about Superman. And he talked about when he does that, pick it up at the beginning, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, like that. Yeah, like he wanted to put like a lot of angst in his voice because he he was listening to a lot of uh, Let's Go by Rancid. Okay, and uh, he really really liked how Tim Armstrong was the ska guy, but he was also this like really like angry ska guy. Right. So I wonder if that maybe played a role in it too. 
Well, but, I mean, uh, they all borrow from each other, right? I mean, well, yeah. I imagine not many people borrowed from the Smashes because, like, I mean, they had friends in high places, but uh, they, I don't think they were inspiring people around them because they were always kind of doing their own thing, right? Yeah. And then uh, what else do I have on here? I wrote how in change, I like how uh, change is all about, you know, uh, uh, intolerance. And then the very next song, uh, Repo Man, he's saying, I won't, no, sorry. What's it called? Hostile is all about like intolerance. And then the very next song, Change, he's talking about how he won't change. <laughs> like, well, make up your mind. You know what I mean? Um, what else? I, I liked everything on here. Repo Man, I said, was a little depressing. Uh, Romeo, Romeo, I thought, had a killer horn line. I thought it predates uh, she has a girlfriend now, I think. Maybe not. Um, this is 98. Uh, turn the radio off was, I think, 96. So it, Okay, uh, so maybe, maybe she has a girlfriend now came out first. Yeah, uh, but they got great instrumentals on here. Uh, <laughs> get out, my baby! I wrote, "Get out like that asshole at Fenway Park, nice and bouncy." You remember that guy? Yeah, he said we're from Toronto. He's like, "Get out, get out, fuck you." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my decision, I loved. I loved Uncle Gordy. About uh, I, I, I wrote, "I don't approve of cracking Doug Gilmore's head, but I do approve of breaking Theo Fleury's legs." <laughs> Theo Fleury turned to a far right nutbag. So uh, I right, approve let's of keep that. the politics out of it, Ted. Have you read some of the things he said? They're appalling. No. It's not politics. It's not approving of racism and homophobia. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Well, good stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Way to bring us down, Ted. Hey, I'm just saying. This is what he says in the thing. Okay. Um, Dirty Old Man reminds me of DJing a beaver and bulldog. Lots of horny old folk there. <laughs> yeah, so it's just uh, I said take it from the top reminds me of kind of like the Hawaii Five O theme song. It kind of has like a seventies vibe to it. Uh, the only song I didn't like was "She's So Hot." I thought that was kind of dumb. Yeah, I, I mean, it could have worked as like a hidden track that didn't actually like if, but like if you, uh, so it has thirteen songs. But if that was a hidden track and you actually took the first twelve, it would have been pretty damn close to perfect. Because my, um, again. The you know the horn section the instrumental at the top is a good flex to be like yeah we got a new band basically except for two guys but they're still tight as all hell and I like how when you think of an album and we've talked about this how it's almost like each album in itself is almost meant to be like a mini concert right where it's supposed to take you on a bit of a ride it's I mean. Obviously, you get certain punk bands. There's other bands that are a little one-dimensional, where it's literally just a flat line across the each. Like they're all good songs, but it's not nothing, no variety. But like when you think about, you know, Attack of the Planet Smashers, and then it goes to a bouncy little on uh, '80s bus, and then it goes to Hostile, where he's doing that like really chunky, aggressive ska guitar, and and then you change is a little surfy and like soft, and then you know Repo Man gets a little softer, and then it picks up. Uh, with like Romeo and Cooler Than You, and then it kind of goes back down. And Give then me one quick second. One quick <laughs> second. Hi. Hi, friend. Hi. Sorry, she put, put him up in the window there. Okay. Yeah. Anyhow, you. you're on a rant. Sorry about that. It wasn't a rant, you ass. It was a, it was a nice dissection of the album. Okay. Do you want to take it from the top? It's funny because that's where I am right now. <laughs> and, then, and, then it, uh, and then it ends with Take Her From The Top. And then, uh, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, Dirty Old Man's a little silly, but uh, 
I mean, the the checkered past people say they shouldn't have written that one. He said, in hindsight, it's not a good song. Like to like with when you think of like I don't know the current landscape. I'm like I don't know. It's just a good uh, song. But you know what? Like hindsight's hindsight's 2020. But also and with these guys, do yeah. you take them seriously for a no. second? No, they're just having a good. Well, not yeah, only we that, school, like, we, yeah, they're not dirty old men. They're they're talking about people who we all know have seen in our bar hopping days who are creepy, dirty old men. It's like uh, when we worked at Beaver and Bulldog. Yeah, prime example. Do you remember the um, the heavy set guy who was there every single every night? He was there. He was he was part of this crew of old folks that would go and dance. He'd always drink Diet Cokes, and he had one dance move. Do you remember that? He just kind of sways his arms back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, uh, you know, you, you could think that he was there to be creepy and, you know, but I think he was just there because he enjoyed the music and he enjoyed kind of the community of these older people who would get out at night. Right. Yeah. But uh, that's an example of uh, what we're talking about there. <laughs> well, that, and you also, like, I mean, I've seen people at West End back in the day the, the guys that always oh, hang out West at the bar. Yeah, you remember that guy's Ted? Yeah, that guy was a real creep. Yeah, not me. This other guy named Ted. Um, Yeah, God, he kind of looked like... We had his look down to a T. Like Ron Jeremy meets Tommy Chung. <laughs> and That's pretty good. There was one Halloween I went to West End with Brent. And he probably remembers the story if he's listening. And Ted was dressed like, you know how like in all those old cartoons, there's like that really like horny wolf that's like, every time he sees like a cute girl. <laughs> yeah. He was dressed as that guy. And every time he saw a cute girl, he'd put on his like wolf mask and he'd be like, do this creepy little walk towards all the girls that came in. They're like, ah, and they leave. I remember one time at, uh, God, it was uh, the gown and gavel in uh, Hess Village. And we're sitting there drinking, and this, there's a bunch of tables of old men, and this group of girls walks in, it's five or six girls, and the one guy yells, uh, just he yells, lesbians, like that, <laughs> right? Because he's a stupid old man. So all the girls carry on with their night, except for one girl who just gives them this look like, and I thought that was funny that her look was so over the top, like, <laughs> like being appalled. But also, like, what the, what is wrong with you? And uh, I was like, if only she walked away like the rest of her team, then it wouldn't have been funny. But because she made that face, it was funny. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was just, it's just, like, we've, we've met our share of dirty old men, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. You know? And it, if it's a character study, that's what it is. It's also a two-and-a-half-minute ska song. I know. So, <laughs> yeah. Don't uh, read too much it. The well, yeah, it's because the the dirty old men are always those guys who think the party never needs to stop, and they think they still got it in them to be out till two. And it's like, hang yeah. it up, hang it up, Grandpa. I'm 37 years old. I like going to bed by 11 o'clock. Yeah, uh, oh, but just it, but it, it's it's also the thing like yeah, you're old and you're going after these young girls. It's just gross. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you get on Twitter and uh, start trying to cancel Leo? Hmm. With DiCaprio? Yes. Yeah, he's got a share of detractors right now. I don't need to join the party. <laughs> Everyone makes the joke, you know, like, uh, once he hit 25, you're too old for him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is there is something to be said, too, about that. I mean, I'm not advocating such a wide age gap, 
but uh, you know, it's it's kind of taking the any sort of agency out of the younger the young lady. I mean, they are an adult, you know what I mean? And if they if they want to date someone older, that is like Bobby Brown. I mean, it's a bad example, but it is their prerogative. That's a, the Bobby Brown's a terrible example. <laughs> um, but uh, what's it called? No, where it gets creepy with DiCaprio is that it's not like he's staying with these girls yeah. in their 30s. That's it's, true. They turn 25, he dumps them and starts dating someone who's 21. Yeah. That's where the creepiness lies. Yeah. You know? It's like um, when he was a young when he was a young man in, you know, hitting up the New York bar scene, he was dating like Kate Moss and uh, you know, women who were older than him yeah. at the time. And then, you know, he just He's doing the whole Matthew McConaughey approach now, you know. <laughs> they get, uh, I get older. They say stay same age. <laughs> yeah, he's literally the a rich and successful Wooderson. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, chugging along to the life of the party, because Matt always, Matt Collier always says party really when he's like party. <laughs> but, uh, it was recorded again. This is another one that was literally cranked out in two weeks. It was recorded January wow. January eleventh to thirty first of nineteen ninety nine, released in July twentieth nineteen ninety again on Stomp, uh, produced by Chris Murray, and then in the states, uh, Moonska, the the guys oh, okay. the posters, they took the distribution for them and took it down there to help give them a bit more of an audience, and. I mean, this is when things. I mean, I I can't find any sales records, but Matt said in, in that interview, that real uh, junk podcast, he's like, we sold so many CDs. I don't know what his definition of uh, so many is, but this thing could have. Maybe I'm being too optimistic that it might not have been gold, but maybe it could have been like a silver, like enough to like. You know. <laughs> it's a Murr record, Brian. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, because gold in Canada is only like it's not a huge benchmark. I think it's uh, what is it, eighty thousand? No, I don't know off the top of my head. I think it's like five hundred thousand. No, I think that's in this. Is that platinum? Mm, I don't know, but um, either way, they 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 this album had a lot of success, and I mean, when it kicks off with Life of the Party, and then it has other singles like Surfing in Tofino, Too Much Attitude. And super orgy porno party. Uh, it has all the makings for a just classic album. But uh, just a little interesting side story when writing Surfing in Tofino, because you always wonder, like, why the hell are they writing about Tofino when they're from Montreal? Apparently, Matt had a family cottage, um, and his brother still lives out in Tofino. He said, uh, oh, wow, okay. he said, uh, he said, right after university, I was trying to make my parents keep their summer cottage. My mom says, if you put a washer dryer in, I'll consider it. It took him all summer uh, to do it. He put in the washer dryer, and they sold it right after. So <laughs> as a reaction, he dropped everything, packed his bags, and moved to Tofino. And uh, Dave Cooper said, the bass player said, we got to write a song about your brother Mike. And so that became uh, Surfing in Tofino. Oh. 
And uh, well, I'd... I've never been. I've been to BC once, Victoria, but Tofino is on Vancouver Island. And apparently, according to some people who have been there, yes, it has surfing, but it's not like California surfing. You have to wear like a full wetsuit because it's very cold. Which they do in the video. Yes. Yeah. Um, what's it called? Uh, it does that. It just reminds you of how I don't know about you. Maybe it's because the winters here in Thunder Bay get so ferocious. Yeah. Uh, I get so bitter when I'm watching the news and they'll go out to BC for a story and they're wearing like, it's January, it's minus 40. We've got snow up to our hips and they're out there in just like a light sweater, blue jeans, and that's it. Man, I'll never forget. Everyone's happy. Because this is right after college. Um, I was at my parents' house and I was watching the Oscars, actually. It was Oscar night, so it was February. And it was cold and it was shitty. Football was over. There was nothing yeah. going on. And I was uh, I was watching the Oscars and they're all it's like they're all complaining they're ah it's so hot. And I'm sitting there, I'm watching slight I was watching uh, Sweet Honey by Slightly Stupid on my computer. I'm like, I would give my left testicle to get the fuck out of Canada right now and go somewhere warm. <laughs> I was just so bitter because I it was all California. So uh, getting on to life of the party, this it when they do the Smashers greatest hits. Half of that album is going to come from Life of the Party because this has all of the Smasher staples on it. Uh, like you said, the title track. Um, you got to remember Shame and Holiday, huge airplay on undergrads. And if you're an undergrads fan, they just repeated the same episodes up here, the one season in Canada all the time. And we loved undergrads. At least we did at the time. You're making noises right now. That uh, We'd always hear those two songs, Shame and Holiday. And Holiday is such a great song. And then, of course, yeah, Too Much Attitude, Surfing into Fino, um, Super Orgy Porno Party. You named them all. Yeah, those are all great tunes. Um, plus, uh, you know, all men fear woman, women is a great song. Uh, wise up is a great song. What's the one I can't find the name of it where he's like, you know, you're not so good looking anymore. Oh, that's you might be. Yeah, you might be. And it's got a couple of instrumental tracks. It does have like suede is one. I'm not a huge fan of just because that's Collier. They're doing, uh, something that's a little bit out of his, uh, out of his league. I like you know, that one. I'm trying to do a soft song. Those, some of the soft songs that he does, like they're fine. They're just they're not the best Plant Smasher songs. But uh, no, this is this is the album that sold me on the Plant Smasher. Yeah, I remember you bought me this album. I think it was for my 14th birthday, and you were very bitter about it you're like, no, because here's what it was. I watched this was me for myself. This is me being unselfish because we had like a fight. We both got. Um, turn the radio off by less than Jake. Uh, the radio on off Christmas morning. Fish. Oh my god! I got to pee. I'm not thinking straight. Um, but we both we both got turned the radio off by Real Big Fish Christmas Day, so we didn't have like bragging rights. You know what on that one? Who's a bigger fan, yeah. right? And I went there and like it's Brian's birthday. I'm gonna do the unselfish thing, and hopefully one day he'll repay me with the unselfish thing. I think you did by getting me ska tracks to begin with. 
which set me on the motion into my ska fandom yeah. compilation album. So that's why I got it for you. I really had to bite the bullet too because I didn't have enough money to get myself a copy. <laughs> and I had to wait a couple of months after your birthday before I got myself a copy. But yeah, I wouldn't got it for you. Um, I'm a good friend. As I was saying, I mean, you stomped on it, but uh, yes, the, the I was going to mention the undergrads. I had it in the script. Um, I'm pretty sure Life of the Party, or there's a couple of songs off that album that also were featured in Radio Free Roscoe. And, oh yeah, yeah. And there, Surfing into Fino was featured in a movie called Three Night Stand, which starred, starred Sam Huntington, who was uh, in Detroit Rock City, and Being yeah, Human, Megan Rapp, who was in also in Being Human, and Children Ruin Everything, and Emmanuel Sharik, who was Sloan from Entourage. Wow. Yeah. So apparently this, yeah. this is in that movie. But uh, wow, what a cast. Yeah. Jeez, that Sam Huntington was in every, like, I, I feel like the race to be the nerdy, awkward guy in teen comedies was between, like, him and Jay Baruchel. Yeah, well, they were... And Baruchel kind of made the right friends at the right time and uh, left old Sam in his dust. They were both in, uh, in, <laughs> in fanboys together, actually. You're right, they were. Yeah, and uh, meeting of the minds there. I mean, Sam Huntington had his own little career. He was in Veronica Mars, and he was in uh, Sully. Yes, he's one of those guys going on that golf trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, before yeah. we dive into our thought, I mean, we're already kind of talking about it, but uh, Life of the Party also won the Montreal Independent Music Award for Best Ska Band. I didn't realize there was that much attention. I didn't know that that was a category. <laughs> Great. And it drew attention from major labels, bands, publishers, booking agents all over the world. And so this is when the offers rolled in because, you know, how they always say it's like um, you got to prove yourself. Well, I mean, three solid albums. Well, one solid album and two great albums. And, you know, that's when the, the offers started rolling. I would say the first one's a solid album. I, I mean, sorry, it's a great album. Sorry. I was going to say, I just said it was solid. Um, yeah, no, I'd say it's a great album. But this is where, you know, uh, you got to admire Matt Collier's convictions. I mean, it's a huge gamble, but he they, they could have easily been picked up by potentially – um, fat, or they could have been picked up by a major label, uh, and probably had a lot more security until the at least until the ska boom happened. But they stuck with Stomp. Um, but what also started to happen at this time is because there were so many people were paying attention, they were able to get more international distribution, which actually helped them. Um, uh, it helped them get popular like Japan and in England. They had a lot more of a following as well. Um, all right. So we've pretty much established, we both love this album. Um, I mean, you know, they say that what you listen to when you're like 12 to probably 16 really cements in your psyche. And I was listening to that, uh, the, like I said before, the checkered pass peeps and they weren't like, they, they love this album, but they weren't as big on attack. And when they they mentioned on one of the episodes how old they were, they're a couple of years behind us. So that makes sense because I oh, was okay. like, I was probably what thirteen or fourteen when I heard Attack, and fourteen or fifteen when I heard uh, yeah. the uh, Life of the Party. So, and I was actually a bit older 
when I heard, because I went back afterwards and got the self-titled, but uh, th- these ones, are, for me, are like the a trinity of just perfection. Like, I love these. Yeah, that... Life of the Party is... It, the only reason I'm not putting it ahead of Attack of the Planet Smashers, even though it has more iconic songs, is because I feel like... It, it's, it's, well, I feel, think that the songs are better on Life of the Party. It has a couple of duds that I'm not a huge fan of. On, uh, Whereas Attack is... Every track is awesome, except for She's So Hot, which is a little irritating. You know what's funny? The, the, the song Whining on Life of the Party... Not only does it really hit the suburban struggle, yeah, um, but it's also, um, you know, because you know how we were, you always had that problem with that movie, Nick and Nora, because, you know, we weren't these, like, scenesters when we were younger going to these, like, local shows and this and that. Um, Also, swinging back to um, Cooler Than You off the attack, that was the first time I ever heard the word hipster. And I always, I always like, really? I never, well, I mean, that album was also night. Like that, that girl in Seinfeld called Kramer a hipster dude. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there an episode of Elaine gets mad at Kramer and calls him a hipster dude? hipster dude. But just uh, when he's just like, they're like, she's so much cooler than you. And he's like, she's a hipster. I'm like, what the hell is a hipster? <laughs> Yeah. Now in the twenty like late two thousands, it people it was an insult calling somebody a hipster. Everyone's a hipster, man. Yeah, yeah. You got called a hipster a fair share of times, which is ironic because none of the bands that I got into were like some like underground whatever. Like by the time I got to them, like they were indie rock or whatever, but they were like not hipster. Like, yeah. it just they got saddled by like hipster. Uh, vernacular, I guess, but uh, we're often called a hipster based on how you dressed, and also because you would often make fun of hipsters when the joke was in the reality of things. That's what the hipster you were does. Also a hipster. Yeah. yeah, well, like you make fun of the hipster for wearing a giant scarf when you're wearing a freaking toque in the summertime. I did that once, and it was June. It wasn't. It was still technically spring. Uh, I was not wearing some like beanie. In July. <laughs> I don't remember the exact specification. I do, actually. I remember this vividly. <laughs> it, was, it was right near the end of high school. Uh, we were standing... Remember how we always went out by that tree? The whole gang was standing by the tree by the football field? That was where uh-huh. that was where uh, you fell on my foot because you didn't know how to do a break fall when Campbell pushed you over me. Remember, you went with it, you just <laughs> fell straight back, and you didn't roll with it. You fell on my foot. Well, that's, that's, I do know how to do a break fall. Campbell doesn't. He's the one that landed on your foot. No, no. You you said, all right, Campbell, since I pushed you as... Oh, that was it. Okay, I forgot the second time. Yes, I, like, I let him push me to get Yeah, and then you that. kind of... You didn't go with the push. You kind of, like, flinched and just, like, fell backwards on my ankle like a freaking dum-dum. But anyway, we were standing under that tree, and there was still kind of a cool breeze, but it was, it was still warm. And I, I think I just had the hat, and it was a bad religion tuke also. It wasn't some hipster beanie. Um, but I think I just had it in my locker and we were starting to do like locker cleanouts because it was getting close to exam time. And so I just was wearing it and you were just visibly getting so annoyed. You're like, why don't you take off the stupid dude? I'm like, I'm comfortable. You're like, you look so stupid. <laughs> You're getting so mad. I stopped using a locker after ninth grade and I never used the locker again. I, uh, 
My actually, my locker was right by uh, Cam Nitty's class because he was my tag teacher. Remember, he had tag in grade nine. Yeah. It's basically what the Americans yeah. call homeroom, right? Homeroom. Well, Cam Nitty was my guy, and uh, my I I just I left my coat, and it was it was one of those Randy River winter coats, so it was like the shell, so like the inner lining was still intact. It was at home, so someone broke into the locker and took the shell, so like took the the outer lining of the winter coat. And so my parents got me another one. It wasn't the same, but that's fine. And I never had that winter coat again. <laughs> Great story. Yeah. yeah. So I, oh, I never use a locker again after that. So anyway, even at the gym, I don't like using a locker. Um, I don't know how we got on this subject. We're the king of the uh, side track. Oh yeah. High school. Um, 39 minutes. <laughs> no. <laughs> the, the song whining. <laughs> It's uh, like yeah. whining because you can't go to the cool indie record shop and uh, all this stuff. I think the closest time I, – I, I didn't go to Cheapies till I was in high school, and I only went like once or twice. And then uh, – Cheapies wasn't great. No, but it was the closest thing to a quote-unquote that and Dr. Disc were the underground record shops that we had. Yeah, or we had the Sonic Onion record store. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. I thought, I thought it was yeah. – Then you and me would do our, our trips to uh, – what's it called? To Sonic Boom. And that was great. That was like yeah, that was after college. I know, but still, we'd go and we'd just get like ten discs yeah. and burn all of our money. We we're living at home; we had all this disposable income, <laughs> and oh fuck, I, I I long for those days. Those were great. Um, but yeah, like, that song is very relatable. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Um, but again, Kung Fu Master and um, Trouble in Engineering, and even though they're different styles, yeah, Kung Fu Master is a great. I think that's the better of the two instruments. They're, they're different styles, you know. Uh, Kung Fu Master picks up and it gets like really like aggressive, more surfy, whereas uh, Trouble Engineering is more of this like kind of jazzy pop kind of thing. But uh, they're, they both are good in their own right. Um, but we'll plow ahead to No Self Control. The what are we on? Number five? Yeah. No four. We still got to get to Mighty. Um, for August 14, 2001, it was produced by Stephen Drake, who worked with uh, the Tragically Hip, Bare Naked Ladies, The Odds, oh, and wow. 5440. Uh, this was the band's first international... What are the odds of that? Boom! I said, what are the odds of that? <laughs> uh, this was the band's first international release, and it went well. Uh, it was well-received by college radio stations. And it reached number 14 on the Japanese retail sales charts. So there you go. Um, as we discussed in the Bedouin episode, making an album with a producer can be frustrating. And the Smashers felt the same pain. There's a quote from Matt Collier. It was really different in comparison with other producers. He invested himself more than anyone else. He was there every single song, every chord, every note. At times we wanted to kill him. But in hindsight, it's 2020. He did a great job. None of our other records sound like this one. And I can safely say uh, he was the closest at getting the band's live energy on tape, said Collier. And it's funny because the Checkered Pass people uh, use the same quote. Because I think there's only so much actual material out there. Uh, we have a lot of <laughs> uh, not ripping them off directly. But uh, they yeah. some of those interesting stories that I got were... Uh, were from an interview they did. It was this drunken mess, but it was it was quite entertaining. Um, was Collier drunk? Well, they were they were after a show, so the the people doing the interview were quite drunk. But the uh, 
Collier seemed to still have his wits about him. He just, uh, you could hear his voice was shot. It sounded like he was like, eh. it's like Al Bar. It's like they're screaming for the whole time. Yeah. Um, the Planet Smashers also expanded by, I mean, inadvertently, this wasn't them doing it, but there was an anime cartoon called Catman that uh, got popular in Japan. And I think it's like this this cat who's like hunting for love and it's all dark and shit. But uh, their video for Blind was all Catman. Um, so if you go on... Oh, is that right? And apparently the whole, like a lot of the Planet Smashers music is scored to Catman, which is weird because it's supposed to be like the animation is kind of like weird and it's not overly like uh, happy. And yet their yeah. their music is very, you know, upbeat. So it's, it's kind of a weird juxtaposition. Maybe that's how they do things in Japan. I don't know. But uh, yeah. they got to go over and go, like, meet some people who put it out and do all this stuff. So it was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much all the background info I have on that. And uh, let's get into No Self-Control. This is one of my favorites because I actually, uh, when Max and I went and saw them at... Uh, the horseshoe. It was them and Big D in this friggin' crammed in horseshoe tavern. It was great. Uh, Max, I'm like, here, Max, here's like $40. Get me one of their vinyls. Or get me, if they have no self control, get that on vinyl for me. And then he came back with it. That's the only vinyl of theirs I have. I'll, I'll probably add the others eventually, but uh, yeah. that's, the only, that's the first one to add to my collection. So I don't want to. I hope I don't piss you off with my thoughts on no, this because no. it's still I still think it's a good album. Uh, and I, I I I had this album. I burnt it from you um, back in the day. I didn't listen to it that much. Um, so re-listening to it, I did it on I think it was Saturday, yeah. uh, and I, I fell asleep towards the end <laughs> just because I was tired. Not because the album was boring or anything like that. I was just tired. But you can also see sort of how I'm like my. Uh, my, <laughs> my like, like I didn't get through Rambler or Skate or Die because I was just too tired. I just gave up on the album and went to sleep. But, like, it starts off, Fabricated is exactly how you should open an album. Fabricated leaves you wanting more. There's something about that song, the horn line, the bass line. It really has that cool feel to it's, it. It's a very driving uh, beat. It's a very driving uh yeah, it really gets you into the album going, okay, I like where this is going. Yeah. yeah. And then you get No Self-Control, which could have been a single. Um, I wish I was American. I had issues with at the time. But I feel like it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek. It is. You're American. Don't you blow on red, white, and blue. So this is America. Leaders of there that the grass isn't always greener yeah. you know what i mean yeah so and you know what that's got that great trombone line so how could i go wrong with it and then uh for evaluation day just sort of office space <laughs> uh blind i think is one of their best songs I liked how there was a little bit of flute on Stupid Present. 
Um, struggle, I said, uh, is a good song for strutting. Yeah. Reminds me of too much attitude a little bit. Um, I did not like it's over. I wrote, I nearly fell asleep. Uh, I said, Hey, Hey, was a great time. Killer sax solo. Um, going out. Good tune. Uh, who's, who's, who's doing the toasting? I wanted to know on, uh, going out. Cause they don't really get like, they have Neville Staples on mighty. Um, but they don't really get a whole lot of guest people. Hey, that guy do that little rap on, uh, being afraid of a woman on uh, Life of the Party. Yeah. They don't really have a whole lot of guest people. Let's see. Keep going through your analysis. I'm going to see if I can find All right, it. I thought Record record Collector was a good song. I didn't like She's Late, and then Rambler and Skater Night I didn't get to because it fell asleep. Well, I mean, okay. I'll, I'll... So the way I'd rate this album, it's a great follow-up to uh, Life of the Party because you know it has the iconic songs, yeah. and you want to build off of the iconic tunes you had in your previous release. Uh, I just don't think it's as good as Life of the Party. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very safe album. <laughs> you keep stepping on me. I swear to God, I'm going to stab you in the throat. Sorry. <laughs> I'm in Thunder Bay. You're in Hamilton. How can you stab me in the throat? Hey, you're coming down in a month there, buddy boy. I'll stab you in the throat. Less than a month. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Actually, no, just over I'll a month. be sharpening my knives. <laughs> um... What the hell was I going to say? Okay, well, first of all, I respect your opinion. That's that's the great thing about music. Uh, you know, not everything, there's there's albums that I think are complete trash. That people are like, this is a masterpiece. Like that uh, Public Image Limited. That, a lot of people hate that. It's just nonsense. And they didn't like that on the 500 podcast. Yeah. Either. Jam thought it was terrible. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's pretty trashy, that album. It's not that good. But then there's people that are probably like, this is a work of art. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, the, the first few songs, like, fabricated, amazing, no self-control. You're right. Could have been a single. Uh, yeah. And then I think the, the they played with the, the hard and the soft very well uh like with songs like stupid present struggle i liked it's over i know it's a bit of a snoozer i like the softness and also i think okay. um when i was listening to it at the gym this morning i was like you know i could have just as easily swapped uh when we did our rom-com kind of playlist about breakup songs this one could have easily yeah. kicked out get out my baby but uh because the line at the beginning where he's like thinking of your face makes me ill is great um but, uh, I mean, I, I had to stick with uh, Get Out My Baby because he called her a lion cheating two-time and no good Jezebel. <laughs> but, um, the, I really like, what was the other one? Uh, Rambler is just so much fun because it's got that, like, the great uh, baritone sax. And, um, yeah, Record Collector has the flutes. And going, yeah, there's just so many ones that just get me so, like, hyped. And also, again, when you go back to, like, your age, this, I got this when I was, like, 15, and I'm like, I love this. And so it's, it's one that always sticks with me. So. It is a good album. It's just, I feel like they played it safe. They didn't really go anywhere new after uh, after Life of the Party. Does that make sense? <laughs> like you can see the evolution from the first album to Life of the Party, and then it just kind of plateaus there. I guess, but I mean, and it's not an insult. Like it's fine. It's it's a good album. I, I don't dislike it. 
I think it's good. It's just, I would say of the first five, it's my least favorite. All right. Well, see, there you go. That's why it's it's good to uh, agree to disagree because this is one of my favorites. So, I mean, it, it's literally neck and neck between Life of the Party, this, and uh, Attack. So, I mean, on any given day, I could easily just say, no, this one's my favorite just because they're all so great. But, uh, yeah. So let's uh, skip ahead. I guess also one more thing to add to uh, uh, No Self-Control was when they were promoting that album. That was at the Sky Dome yeah. Warp Tour. And that was the first time I'd ever seen the Plant Smashers live. Yeah. And I tried to skank for the first time and I failed miserably. I was bouncing a little bit and there was this tall, gangly looking Dutch kid that wouldn't stop nearly kicking me in the face. He had these long legs. He just like flailing them out there. Yeah. But this- it's, it's so funny. You see these guys with the giant mohawks and the buttons and the studs, you know what I mean? And you think they're just there for like the most hardcore bands. Yeah. And then they get into the skank pit and they can skank better than everybody else there. <laughs> and you're... <laughs> Because they're always walking around with those damn boots, so they're they're uh, they're light on their feet. But uh, what was I going to say? That's a good thing about uh, ska music too. Is just that people when they really get into it. I mean, yes, you get people who are a little self. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self uh, self conscious about skanking and like, oh, I don't want to look silly or whatever. But then there's like that Dutch kid that nearly kicked me in the face. I don't even know if he's Dutch. Yeah. He doesn't look Dutch. Like he was just, he was just like, he's, how do you look Dutch? I don't know. He's tall. They have wooden shoes? No, but he was tall and he was very pale and he had blonde hair. It was close enough. Okay. Um, but his eyes were closed. He was just like into the music. He's just bobbing his head back and forth. He didn't give a shit. He could have had a friggin' slew of people knocked out from getting kicked in the face. He was still would have just skanked right over their corpses. But uh, one more thing we forgot to mention. Now we're at 27 minutes. I should let you know. Yeah, we got time. One thing the Plant Smashers did that, like, you know, like you go see, like, yeah, the Boston's are all in suits when you go and see them. But a man like Real Big Fish or Less Than Jake, they just kind of wear what they were wearing that day. Maybe they put on a bowling shirt or a Hawaiian shirt. Right. But the Smashers always had a uniform. The, the golf shirt? The, the entire if I could get my hands on one of those golf, golf shirts. I've seen them with button up, like, Dicky shirts. I've seen them with all kinds of shirts. Yeah. But they're all wearing the same thing. If yeah. I could get my hands on one of those shirts, I would be so happy. But I'm, I'm too tall. I don't make them in my size. I remember seeing uh, the Boston's tour. Actually, it was the first Warped Tour we went to in 2001. And Rick the Temp is uh, interviewing them in Barrie. And he's like, yeah, these are nice suits. He's like, well, we used to rock Armani suits. But uh, no one's buying pay attention. So we're down to Banana Republic. <laughs> What a freaking Goomba. (laughs) So we get ahead to Mighty, uh, which was released actually just a couple days ago. was the 20th anniversary. It's June 3rd, 2003, uh, produced by Rod Shearer. Uh, I looked up his work. I didn't really recognize anything. Um, And it had... The, on the song Explosive was the toasting of the legendary Neville Staple from the specials. Yeah. 
That's a great guy. Um, That's such a good, cool guy. And that was the. This is the first album to feature their new drummer Scott Russell, and this was the only album to. Uh, they had a new trombonist, J O. Bajan, Bajan, I don't know. Uh, exclaim, Bajan, Bajan, Bajan. I've heard that name so many times. Uh, ex- There's a lot of Bajan slash Bajans up here in Thunder Bay. Uh, exclaim called it. Uh, wrote that the Planet Smashers break out some new tricks in the latter half of the album with songs like "Can't Stop," a folky harmonic infused mm-hmm. "Recollect," uh, which slows it down a notch. Um, they they went on to give it a really positive review. Uh, the Gazette, I don't know which Gazette because there's like. Whatever, but it said four to five, so probably the Montreal Gazette. Yeah, probably. Um, so it got good press. What are your thoughts on Mighty? You know, Mighty is an interesting record because okay, I always have those songs I say are like classic Planet Smasher songs because the times I've seen them recently, I've seen them three times. I saw them at that one Warp tour. I saw them just solo when we saw them with Creep Show, and I was hammered and couldn't get down for the hippo song, which we'll talk. No, about. No, no, it wasn't the hippo song. And it was the it was the um, it was uh, surfing into Fino because they do that breakdown. Remember where he's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's when everyone jumps up and everyone just starts going hey, ballistic. Yeah, That's when yeah, everyone yeah, going yeah, ballistic, yeah. and freaking Matt's right. pointing at you like, "Hey, buddy, get down!" And you're like, "I'm trying." I had no room, and I was also hammered. I would have fallen and not been able to get up. Um, so uh, what's it called? So that's my little interaction with Matt Collier. Oh, just started one of the songs. Didn't mean to. Um, but and we saw them at the hometown throwdown. So and you saw them on the road before too. But they have this like the back catalog. They have songs that they go to. Here on Mighty, you get Mighty, which is a slower start to the album. But it's a great song. Yeah. Mighty. Explosive Neville Staples, come on, awesome. Missionary Downfall is one of my favorite tunes by them. It's just so happy yeah. and upbeat. Um, Jamie Tafem, I like your girls, a great song. It's Jem Tafem. J'aime de femme. Well, that makes a little more sense. But then, like, in the middle of the album, they get really experimental. And like you said, Recollect and uh, Can't Stop, with that, which has the harmonica going yeah. in it. Those are very, they're using new instruments that aren't really common for the Planet Smashers album. And I really like that they're taking a chance there. And then we get down here, and Girl in the Front Row uses those chimes. It was, I think it was like, like it's like not a, a xylophone. It was, I think it was because. No, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a similar instrument to a xylophone, but it plays in a way higher yeah. register. So I'm not sure what uh, what that is, but I like that they were taking all these chances. Here's the thing, though: outside of those songs, "Never Gonna Drink Again," a great closer. Some of the other stuff there's a little forgettable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there is some tracks on here that are good, but they're not necessarily standouts. Like you started off with this killer, the killer. The first four songs are killer. Then you get that like experimental portion. 
And then at the end, it's almost like they're just trying to fill out time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some great songs in the middle, but uh, yeah, it's like it it clocks in at fifty minutes, seventeen songs. Like this is what I was talking about before. Remember back like two years ago or a year ago, whenever we did did uh, Swollen Members, how we were saying yeah. Swollen Members yeah. needed to friggin' get a better editor to kind of chop down the stuff. But this is the problem, right? I mean. I don't think the producer can say what goes on and off the album. All they can say is like, all right, we got the song, good stuff. But, uh, um, you know, Matt and, you know, being the head of Stomp had the final say. It's like, no, no, we want to juice this album out, give them like their money's worth, I guess. But, uh, or maybe they were just feeling really creative and they were all over the place. They just wanted to say like, this is where we are at this time. It's hard to say, but yeah. And, and what I do, what I do like about the album is, 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 is apart from my gripe with, uh, with no self-control, how I didn't feel like they showed any growth from Life of the Party. They do show a lot of growth here. I feel like they're a much tighter band here. Yeah. Than really than they had ever been. So that's a big thing too. So I liked Mighty a lot. It's just, uh, I'll need, this is the first time I've ever listened to it start to finish. Uh, I'll need a couple more listens though before I really sing its praise. I I will say this, because I've been listening to it a lot lately and Mighty might be one of those albums because uh, I heard it on another podcast. They mentioned it, and I think they said it with um, the the no self control. But I think it applies to this one too. Mighty is an album where you can't really. I mean, you can hand pick like the first couple songs, or you can you can just be like when you're at the gym, you're like, oh, I want something to pipe me pump me up. I'll put on like Psycho Neighbor or something. Um, but aside from that, this is an album that really benefits, you know, back in the glory days when, you know, you would, you remember you and me putting on albums in my backyard or you'd actually just sit there yeah, listening, listening to it start to finish. This is one of those albums. Sit back with a couple, I, I like that we're so young. We weren't drinking beer. We we're drinking Mountain Dews. <laughs> and that's when you're like, pass me the sperm killer. <laughs> remember that? Yeah. But this, the and Mountain Dew was the first one to introduce the wide mouth cans, which we all enjoy now. Really? Mm-hmm. 20 minutes well we got well i'm i'm out of material so now we can just oh okay uh, <laughs> we can just rip we're at the five out no i think i think uh my ranking of the first five number one attack of the plant smashers number two life of the party number th- three i'm gonna go with the debut the self-titled mighty clocks in at number four and then uh, No Self-Control fifth. And that is nothing against No Self-Control. I think it's a good album. I'm not trying to shit on it. I just think it's the weakest of the first five. I'd probably go Life of the Party. And for me, this is my personal. Uh, Life of the Party, No Self-Control, and it's like a tight one-two. Um, then Attack, then Mighty, and then Self-Title. There's something, though, about Attack where I like how it's a little bit more raw and less polished. Oh, I love, like sometimes you'll get the, like, you, you know, you get those, you get those, like, have you ever listened to, I, I know you've seen Metallica live in concert before, yeah. right? And you know, Metallica stuff nowadays is very, very polished, yeah. but you ask a hardcore Metallica fan who would say, you know, rock on cliff, everything after loaded shit. You know <laughs> what I mean? One of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> They like that early stuff, which is almost unlistenable nowadays. Those first couple albums, because they're just the production quality, so such shit. Yeah. I remember buying um, Bad Brains' first album 
because I heard a download of this digitally remastered version or something like that. I'm like, okay, this is pretty good. I did not realize that the album that I bought was not digitally remastered, <laughs> and it sounds like ass. Right. It sounds terrible, right? I, I can't listen to it. I have it because it's like a punk rock essential, and Campbell tries to tell me how great it is, and I'm like, Campbell, it's just that's like it's um, just noise. It's just bad. Well, it's like look at um, <laughs> what is it? You look at um, Husker Du, right? Like uh, yeah, that's a great example. Some people love. New Day Rising because it's very gr- uh, like grimy and raw. Then you Candy Apple was it Candy Apple Gray or whatever, or uh, Zen Arcade or like way too polished or yeah. Well, even with Zen Arcade, because remember they had two singers, right? right? There's the songs that the drummer sang that I liked a lot better than the songs Pop Mold sang. Yeah, yeah, because they were a little more poppy. Oh, wow. pop, 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 I just pop. like hooks. I like hooks. What can I say? Yeah, that's why the Planet Smashers are so great because they are, I mean, they may not be the king of the hook, but they're pretty damn close. Matt Collier can write a hook to save his his life. Other people cannot. And, uh, well, here's hoping that uh, this back half of the catalog goes just, goes down just as easy as the first half. See, in hindsight, we should have done six. We should have done Unstoppable because... After Unstoppable, they take a, like a six-year hiatus. So it would have been better to pick it up with the scent, but whatever. It is what it is. And you know what? We've got this stuff, though, in our head, and then we'll uh, we'll go from there. And then we'll do the first album, and then we'll do the uh, hiatus of the last three and the more recent stuff, and we'll see how it goes. All right, then. But, uh, yeah, which which album's uh, Hippopotamus on? Descent into the Valley of the Planets. Descent, okay. okay. So that's the All second right. one we'll be listening to. All right, well, uh, with 16 minutes to go in my uh, Zencaster recording time, <laughs> I guess we're calling this a wrap, but you don't have to wait too much longer because, uh, you know, next week we'll do the back half of the Planet Smashers catalog, and then, Brian, you know, it's almost the summer. I think we're due for a new summer playlist. Yeah. Again, FM. And uh, I love the way our end-of-summer playlist went last summer. So, uh... Think of some tunes, because I think we should do that next. And then uh, we'll talk about where we want this podcast to go off microphone, because I got some ideas. Because the fall is going to be a very hectic time for me, having a second kid. Oh, so what? All the work's going to fall on me? What changes? Well, no, I'm just... I Okay, put it this way. When you have one kid, you can focus all your attention on one kid, Right. When you have a second, you got to divide your attention. And that's what I'm intimidated about. That's what I'm worried about in uh, in the fall. Yes, but you do realize, Ted, for the first, like, few months, basically until almost the spring, the child is basically just going to be a potato just laying there. That's what Bryn said to me. She's like, just leave it on the floor. You can get work done. (laughs) (laughs) She was kidding, right? But still... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, like if we've got a, if I had yeah. a baby while I was editing the podcast, I could keep it in a little uh, like a car seat thing and like a like a, a uh, carrier and just like rock it with my toes, like Peggy did with uh, GH. Yeah, yeah, you could do that. You could do that, <laughs> but we'll see what happens. I was pretty proud of Freddie the other day. Um, two things he did. One, I uh, I was playing some tunes around the house because we're trying to. It's the summertime. We want him to be outside playing, so we're reducing his TV time. <laughs> And uh, I was rocking a little uh, uh, 
super rad by the Aquabats, and he starts dancing. He's got to dance. He does that. He goes That's like that. Moves his arms back and forth, and he was doing that to the Aquabats. I'm like, all right, you like you, you like yourself some ska. And uh, I had the Jays game on the other day, and uh, the network, like the the satellite. No, sorry, the internet feed cut out, so the game stopped. He went, arr, arr, handed my phone back to me to get the game back on. I'm like. All right. You like baseball now. Okay. This is good. So we're going in a good direction with him. Yes. Baseball, Hawaiian shirts, and ska. It's like, Freddie, be prepared to not lose your virginity for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know what? If he's anything like his old man. (laughs) That's that's his future right there. But you will be very happy, Freddie, once you hit your 30s. <laughs> <laughs> All that other stuff's going to be tough. <laughs> All right. Well, Tom, you hit uh, 30, next you'll be time. the Iron Chef of Pounding Vaj. Whoa. Thanks, Jonah Hill. That's from Super yeah, Bad, right? Shit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Until next time, I'm Ted. And I'm Brian. How oh, yeah. We'll see you for part two next week. Pick it up. Uh, yeah. Oh my god, you gassy windbag. Come on. One, two, one, two. Mic check, one, two, one, two. Yeah.